invite you to turn in your Bible with me this morning to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. I hope you're enjoying this study of Luke's gospel. I'm enjoying it immensely. It reminds me of when I was a little guy going up north with the fam- for family vacation. There's a little museum, I think it's still there actually, up in Gaylord called the Call of the Wild. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to, uh, to visit Call of the Wild. It's a um, just this very plain little building, but what, you go inside and they got all these uh, little uh, places where you can look up against the window and they had little stuffed uh, creatures, bears and elves, and I mean elves, bears and elk and, and, uh, and wolves. And, uh, and, and, you know, and it'd be a snowy scene, and, and the wolves would be attacking the elk. Or there'd be, so every, every uh, pick window you come to, you look, and there's this whole new drama being played out. And as a little kid, I was absolutely fascinated by every new window. I took our kids there uh, when they were, um, oh, now about 10 or so, and they were not impressed by a little stuff. <laughs> like, really, Dad? Because I... <laughs> I thought it was great. Well, when I'm go- as we're going through Luke, right, we, every, every Sunday, in a sense, we come to a new window, and we get to see a new dramatic scene unfolding as Jesus is being presented to us, not as a uh, sort of a paper figurine from the past, but a living, breathing, dynamic God, Savior, man. Uh, the Jesus that we know and profess and commune with is being revealed to us week after week in these uh, vignettes, in these dramatic pictures uh, of what happened and what he did and what he said. And so I hope you come this morning, and I hope you are amazed and astonished again at the glory and goodness of Jesus. Let's pick it up. Luke chapter 8, beginning of verse 40. <clears throat> now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. 
The title of my message this morning is Only Believe. I don't have an outline for you, but there's just two points, a a desperate father and a hopeless woman. Those are the two figures that we'll be looking at this morning and seeing how Jesus engages with them both. So this morning, once again, we find Jesus at work. Uh, He came to um, give sight to the blind. He came to give freedom to the captives. Uh, Jesus came to engage the brokenness and fallenness of the world. And so almost every scene you find Jesus in, he's surrounded by human suffering, human grief and loss and death. He just went to the other side of the lake and there met the demoniac, the man who was utterly in bondage to the powers of hell, and Jesus miraculously healed him. And of course, then the townspeople came and seen that they had lost their livelihood in the, in the pigs uh, casting themselves into the sea, they asked Jesus to leave, and so he did. And he comes now back to Galilee, and he lands on the, sh- the shore there, and immediately there meets, uh, a crowd meets him. Once again, uh, all sorts of human needs, all sorts of human suffering and brokenness. Uh, Christianity is no Pollyanna religion. Am I making that cracking sound? It's, it's, oh, they're fixing the roof. Excellent. <clears throat> well, we don't see somebody coming down because I, <clears throat> all right, very, <clears throat> all right, well, like I said, Christianity doesn't pretend everything's just the way it ought to be. Um, so I'll just beg you to focus your mind on Jesus uh, this morning as we, but see, some accuse Christianity of that, that, you know, this is sort of a pie-in-the-sky religion and that, uh, you know, just uh, sort of turn a blind eye to everything that's going on in the world, be naively ignorant about how hard it is. Uh, there's nothing like that in Christianity. You don't find Jesus doing that. Uh, Jesus acknowledges and Christians acknowledge that, that life is hard, sometimes extremely hard, and then it becomes devastating. Uh, at the conference this, uh, this week, uh, Tim Keller uh, quoted from Shakespeare, which you'll notice I very seldom quote from Shakespeare, except when I'm quoting from someone else that has. And, um, but just in Shakespearean style, right? Each new morn, new widows howl, new orphans mourn, new sorrows strike heaven in the face. Every day somebody's heart is broken. Countless hearts are broken. Every day someone loses the most important thing in their life. Every day people lose their life itself. There are awful, awful things that happen in this world. And Jesus has come to engage all of that. And Jesus has come to bring um, not just a momentary relief. Jesus has come to bring about the reversal of the curse, the making of uh, everything new. And so we're about big things today as we study Jesus. Well, he, he, he comes to the shore of the lake, and uh, there we find a desperate father. Uh, there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Luke tells us quite a bit about this man, tells us his name, Jairus, uh, tells him his occupation. He's a ruler of the local synagogue, so he has status in the community. He has religious significance as the ruler of the synagogue. He's a man of importance, someone that people would know and pay attention to. He's almost certainly a Pharisee, someone very concerned about moral living. 
But everything you really need to know about Jairus, about this man, the only thing that actually matters at the moment, the defining reality of his life is the fact that he has a daughter, a 12-year-old girl, who's dying. And you don't need to say anything more to know everything you need to know about Jairus. His world is collapsing. Sons were undoubtedly prized in Israel, but a daughter is a daughter. Daughters do things to father's hearts that they didn't expect. This is not just a poor young girl who is sick. This is his precocious, precious 12-year-old girl, and he's losing her. She's dying. The joy of his heart is about to perish. And so Luke tells us about his posture because The posture is jarring. Here's this important man, this this respected, well-known man who has collapsed at the feet of Jesus. And he's, he's a Pharisee. He's a respected person. And Jesus had some of his most... Uh, vehement disagreements with the Pharisees. They were deeply suspicious of him already. They, um, they had charged Jesus with blasphemy. They believed that he was a false teacher because he befriended sinners. And, and so it would have been a great surprise for those who are in the community to look over and see Jairus, the synagogue ruler, prostrate before the feet of Jesus, begging Jesus for help. But you see, losing a daughter will do that to a man. It'll break down all your strength and and pride, all your pretensions. Eric Clapton tragically lost a son, four and a half years old. He wrote the song, Tears in Heaven, and says it very well. Time can bring you down. Time can bend your knees. Time can break your heart and have you begging, please, begging, please. Life will do that. And so although Jairus in the past may have been concerned about his reputation, might have been concerned about his religious status, about how he appeared in public, none of that matters. you got to see that, that nothing matters more than his great loss, more than his desperate concern for his daughter, and his deep conviction that Jesus can help. He is not there at the feet of Jesus um, in, in, in unbelief. He's, he's not there um, for, for any other reason than he thinks that Jesus can help. You don't do this unless you think there's help there. He wasn't, he wasn't bowing at the feet of other people. And so the things that we know about Jairus, the things that matter, his whole world is defined now by his overwhelming need and Jesus as the only possible help, Jesus' unique, unparalleled ability. And Jesus responds. And so they go. They're making their way. But we read that as Jesus went, the people pressed around him. You can can just imagine Jairus uh, trying to push his way through the crowd. Everybody wants a piece of Jesus. Everybody's crowding around. And and Jairus knows they need to get home. His his daughter is dying. When he left her, she she was teetering on the brink of death. And so he's trying to push their way through. They have to go. The need is so urgent. Excuse us. Please let us through. And then Jesus stops. Just stops. And he turns around and he asks this really strange question, who touched me? And interestingly, there's something about the way Jesus said it 
that people didn't want to admit it. So everyone around is denying, I didn't touch you. There's something about the way that he said it that made people sense that there's something significant here that I'm not, I, don't, I don't want to confess to, I don't want to, I don't want to get involved in. And so people are denying it. And Peter finally boldly responds with, with, this, with this rebuke of Jesus. Master, I mean, the crowds surround you and, and are pressing in on you. Uh, Peter was very helpful this way. When it, whenever Jesus said something foolish, uh, Peter was there to just correct him. <laughs> Right, uh, Jesus says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and these bad things are going to happen. And uh, Peter's, of course, Jesus, don't be silly. That's not going to happen. Uh, Peter was very helpful in, in, in this way. Jesus, there had, I, I, was, I, was, I was studying this. I was thinking there had to be an angel standing right there saying, Lord, please, please, just let me just slap. <laughs> but Jesus ignores right, the ignorance, the arrogance of Peter's statement. And he, he answers it. Jesus said, someone touched me. For I perceive that power has gone out from me. Someone touched me. See, there were things going on that Peter was completely oblivious to, as Jairus would have been as well. And a miracle had taken place right there, and they didn't know it. There was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And so the scene now suddenly shifts from this desperate man who has a dying daughter to this helpless, hopeless woman. And there's a great contrast between the two figures. Jairus, we know his name. We don't know the name of this woman. He's on the top of the social religious pyramid. She's not on the pyramid. He's revered. She's at best pitied and avoided. You see, her disease has devoured her life. Her bleeding would not only be physically debilitating, it was spiritually contaminating. She was, she was like a leper in that sense. The laws, the, the uh, Levitical laws mandated that, that uh, a woman who has this discharge would be unclean. And everything she touches would be unclean. To touch her would be to become ceremonially contaminated. And she's had this for 12 years. 12 years. As long as Jairus has had his daughter, she's had this desperate condition. And though she had spent all of her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She'd spent all she had. She'd lost now her, health, or her wealth as well as her health. And, and the verdict was in. Beyond help, beyond hope, a lost person, a rejected person, not only by, by men but by God, that, that, that somewhere, somehow, people undoubtedly would have assumed she's done something amiss or her parents did something amiss. God is paying back. That's how we so often interpret trials. And so we have two very different people. Everyone would have assumed that Jairus was, was at the pinnacle of acceptance by God. Everyone would assume that this woman was at the bottom uh, of acceptance, that she had, in fact, been rejected. But we, we find in truth that these people are they're, they're almost identical. They're, they're not much different at all. They're just poor creatures made of clay, suffering the devastating effects of a broken, sin-cursed world, and both of them are beyond the help of the world. There's nothing that can help either one of them. The doctors had tried undoubtedly with this daughter as well. And so they have one thing in common. They're desperately in need. And Jesus is their only hope. 
The same is true for all of us, whether you realize it or not. We look like pretty well put together people this morning, but it wouldn't take a whole lot of digging to realize how desperate we are. Riken says, whether physical or spiritual, we all have needs we cannot meet and problems we cannot solve. We struggle with besetting sins, broken relationships, incurable disabilities, chronic diseases, and areas of personal weakness that leave us feeling discouraged and defeated, and oftentimes, I would add, judged and rejected. Why isn't God fixing it? Why doesn't he put it back together? And Riken says, in the end, death will bring all of us to our knees. So we're, we're really no different than this woman or Jairus. We're just as desperate. We're just as incapable of fixing ourselves, and there's nothing in the world. There's absolutely nothing in the world. You can look to every philosophy, every other religion. You can look to your psychologists, your social workers. Uh, it doesn't matter. There are no answers to what ails us. We're beyond help in this world. But you see, it's fascinating to see what desperation does when it meets with hope. When desperation is just desperation, it just goes and cries or it goes to hide. But when desperation meets with hope, you find startling things happen. You find people saying crazy things like the blind man of Jericho saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I want to see a blind man. We're a leper saying, if you are willing, you can make me clean. You, you see, desperate people don't say that just to people passing by. They know that. There's no hope there. But when, when, when Jesus arrives, when hope arrives, people then suddenly do these crazy things. Uh, men actually do let their paralyzed friend down through a roof. They just destroy a perfectly good roof and let this hopeless condition, this man down. Why? Because desperation has met hope. And that's exactly what you find with Jairus. He's willing to let it all go. His desperation has, has discovered that there's hope in Jesus. And, and, so, and so he goes and throws himself down at Jesus' feet. And it brings this woman pushing through a crowd, a crowd that she would have utterly avoided in the past. You see, if you could, it's hard for us to imagine this, but she's lived her life in the shadows She's, she's isolated, she's alone, she's shamed. Think of, the, of being this poor woman with this condition and being known for that, right? She, she, she's an unclean, rejected person. So what in the world is she doing pushing her way through the crowd, contaminating, right, everyone that she's touching? Think of the rebuke that she would have suffered if she was, was discovered. But see, her fear is... is it just goes to the wayside because there's, there's hope there. Jesus is there. And she, and she doesn't, she's not asking for a lot. She says, if, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, just touch the tassel of his robe, I, I will be healed. And, and so she makes her way through and she touches it and it happens. Instantaneously, the disease leaves her body. She's healed. The power and the grace of God is so overflowing, you see, that when is, as she comes into contact with Jesus and reaches out with a hand of faith, immediately she is healed. And it's not a great faith. It's got some magic, in a sense, tied up with it, if I just touch the hem of his robe. But it's true faith. It's sincere faith. She knows what she needs, and she believes that Jesus can provide it, and God responds to that faith in grace. But notice... The habits of hiding are still there. She's been healed, 
And she turns, intending to leave just as quietly as she came. She's convinced that Jesus, is a, he, Jesus doesn't want to be bothered by her. She's a nobody. She's absolutely nobody. And Jesus is a very, very great teacher and a rabbi, and he's, he's so busy. And, and so she turns quietly to leave, but Jesus won't let her. So that's why he says, who touched me? And it's clear he's serious about it. Maybe even stern in some sense. Because people are somewhat nervous about admitting that they might have touched him. Who touched me? I perceive that power has gone out from me. Verse 47, when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. Now again, put yourself in this, in this woman's shoes. On the one hand, you have this incredible in this knowledge that you've been healed when, when you were beyond hope and beyond help. Nobody could help you, but you believe Jesus could, and, and he did. And, but now you're making your way out, and, and Jesus now calls you back. And he, he wants to know what's happened. He wants her story. You see, she wanted the healing to remain a secret. Her, her need was embarrassing. It was embarrassing not just because of the intensely intimate and personal nature of it, but it was embarrassing because of the religious implications as well. Her, her disease had made her unclean, unfit, unworthy. It was, it was shameful. There was shame kind of all over it. And now Jesus was asking her to reveal her shame right there in front of everybody. Can you imagine that? And so she did. She in the presence of all the people, she explained why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. She gave her testimony in all of its embarrassing, glorious truth. This is what was wrong with me. This is what I needed, and, and this is what Jesus did for me. Now, the, the question, of course, is why would Jesus make her do this? It doesn't seem very kind. It seems, I don't know. It's not really sensitive. I mean, to embarrass this poor woman, here's this quiet figure who's been wounded all these years and living in shame. And So why, why does he do this? Well, for two reasons. One is to glorify the grace of God and the power of God. You see, Jesus didn't do miracles just as like handing out divine favors as he, as he made his way through the world. Miracles are signs. They are they're, they're, they're testimonies to the nature of God, the, the nature of Jesus and why he came. He's come to fix what is broken. He's come to make things new. And, and he's come because the Father has sent him, that God is gracious and good and able and willing to save. You see, so that's what the miracle is about. It's, it's to magnify the truth about God, the truth about Jesus, the glory of the gospel. And so it has to be told. You see, the most significant thing about the miracle is what it says about God, not what it does for the person. And so it needs to be told that God would be magnified and other people then could see and believe. What if every person who received a miracle had, it had, it had all been anonymous? No one knew. So Jesus wants other people to, to hear the good news of why he came and what he was able to do and see with their own eyes 
the nature and the character of God. Now, it's interesting, and I'll just touch on this. You'll notice at the end of the story of the raising of the daughter, Jesus tells the parents, don't say anything. Now, why is that? Because people couldn't handle the truth. When they found out that Jesus was raising dead people, like Lazarus, right? They're uh, hail to the, the anointed, David's son, and we're going to make him the king. They completely misunderstood it. They weren't able to handle that truth. But Jesus invites this woman, calls this woman to come and give her testimony. Paul does the same thing, 1 Timothy 1.15, when he says that wonderful thing that this is a trustworthy saying, worthy of full acceptance. Jesus Christ died for sinners of whom I am chief. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was an insolent opponent of God. But God had grace on me so that you all could believe that he's a patient God and able to save the greatest sinners. There's power in testimonies about the glory and the goodness of God for sinners. So one reason is just to magnify then the most significant thing here, the nature and character of God. But the other reason Jesus invites her to come forward is to bring her into the experience of grace. Jesus is calling her out of, you see, the shadows of her shame. He wants her to walk in the light of his grace and peace. She was willing to settle for an anonymous healing. But he wants to bestow upon her public glory and honor as a ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven daughter of the Most High God. And so he says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Names her as a daughter of God. That's the last thing she expected to hear. That she was a daughter of the Most High God. She'd spent most of her adult life believing she was rejected by God. And other people thought the same. She needed to hear with her own ears those words from Jesus. You are a daughter of God and your faith is laudable. And your faith has been effective. Go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Not that faith has the power. Jesus has the power. Faith unites us to him. But Jesus pronounces the benediction of God on her life there in front of everybody. Do you see how she's just exalted? She's made a whole new person, a whole new identity. See, she needed to hear that with her own ears, the nature of her true identity. We need to hear the nature of our true identity. We let the world and the flesh and the devil speak to us and, and judge and condemn. And we need to hear Jesus over and over saying to us, no, 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 you are a son of God, a daughter of God. Your faith is effective. It's, it's made you well. The peace of God is upon you. You need to hear that. I need to hear that. So the shame, you see, is as gone as the disease. She's publicly named and recognized and honored as a beloved daughter of God. You realize that's, what's going, to, that's what's going to happen on the last day. You are going to be publicly acknowledged as an heir as a child of the king, as the bride of Jesus Christ. Honor and glory are going to be granted to you. It's already yours. It's just going to be publicly displayed when you see Jesus. Now let me just quickly apply this because there's great lessons here for us. You see, m many of us would like to live like this, women, like this woman. We want to experience the grace of God for our need, but we'd like to do it quietly, anonymously. Because it's embarrassing to admit the truth about our need. We're, we're actually very, very frightened about being exposed as someone who actually needs the grace. 
So we'd like the secret miracle, the private healing, and we'll slip out and get on with our life, our secret, carefully hidden, our reputation secure. But that's not how it works. That's not how it works. You see, in fact, that approach will keep you bound in your fear and your shame and prevent you from experiencing the full glory of grace. Imagine if this woman had just had managed to slip away and just go home. All that she would have lost, all that she would never have experienced. You see, Jesus had so much more for her than just her physical healing. He wanted her to taste the glory of her reconciled status, to know the truth of her honored position as a child of God, and her new calling to publicly magnify the name of the Jesus who did not reject her, who loved her and healed her. And Jesus wants the same for us. We tend to want to get fixed. Jesus wants us to be saved to the uttermost. Jesus wants us to experience all that he has for us. And he's come to fix us, right? He came to deliver us from the curse of sin. He came to rescue us from the condemnation that stood against us, that all the powers of the world were useless to us. Jesus died so that you and I could have everlasting life as a free gift. But to receive that gift, we need to experience a death of our own. We need to experience a death to our pride, a death to our reputation, a death to our fear of being known as someone who desperately, truly needs saving. I don't have scientific evidence for this, but I am convinced that one of the one of the greatest things binding. Christians and Reformed Christians, one of the things that binds us to our sin and to our shame and our fear, and one of the greatest hindrances to our freedom in witnessing and, 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 and seeing powerfully God draw people to saving faith in Jesus Christ through that, one of the greatest obstacles then to our bearing fruit for the glory of God and living in the joy of His grace and peace is simply our pride. Our unwillingness to be seen and known as sinners who desperately stand in need of Jesus. We want the miracle of salvation without the humility of publicly admitting our need of it. We've, we've come to believe the lie, you see, that we have an image to maintain, an ability that we're supposed to project if we're going to have a, a meaningful testimony that honors God. It's just not true, right? Let, let the pagans testify of their abilities. Our testimony is our desperate need and Jesus as the only Savior for sinners and failures like us. That's our testimony. The testimony of your accomplishments and your abilities does nothing to glorify God or help those who are in need. But the testimony of your weakness and your desperate and desperateness and Jesus' power and Jesus' grace and Jesus' truth, Jesus' glory, that that testimony, you see, will do both. It both magnifies God and offers hope to those who are still in great need. It does both. Just ask the people in this body who've been exposed as sinners, publicly exposed. Ask them 
how God has used and is using their failure and their weakness to magnify the grace and the power and the beauty and the glory of Jesus and powerfully to impact and help other people. You want to know where the hurting people go in this church? They go to the people who will understand, the people who've been willing to be seen as weak and broken and needy, and the people who can testify with absolute sincerity, Jesus is sufficient. And that dying to pride is not the worst thing that can happen to you. It's liberty. It's freedom. Being exposed isn't the end. We think it is. But being exposed is not death. Remaining in the shadows is death. Jesus invites this woman, you see, out of the shadows, out of the shame, because he loves her and because he has something glorious for her. Jesus calls us to testify to the grace that's able to heal even people like us. And, and I just have to say, in, in some of the, most, the greatest, most fruitful, most God-glorifying and healing events in these last 20 years of ministry have been the public confessions of sin as we've seen people both exposed and yet gloriously forgiven and healed as they cast themselves desperately upon Jesus. And what that does for all of us, you see, is it allows us to come into the light, all of us to say, that's me. I am the desperately needy person. I can't do this on my own. I cannot fix me. I need Jesus or I will die. And I need Jesus for very shameful reasons because I'm a sinner in shameful ways. And yet God has grace for shameful sinners like me. And if he can show grace to a shameful sinner like me, then he can surely show grace to you. That's our story. That's our testimony. And so Jesus invites this woman to tell her story. And she does. And God is glorified. And she's set free. Can you imagine the power of God that could be released? And I think in increasing measures, praise God, it's all his power all the time. But as we just get more free of telling the story of his grace, telling the stories of his healing, his kindness to us in Jesus... Well, may God grant it. And so here we have in this text this strange thing. We have this amazing healing, and we've got Jairus standing there waiting. You see, for us, it's just a break in the narrative. For, for Jairus, every moment is unspeakably precious. His daughter's life is slipping away. Why couldn't Jesus just acknowledge that she's been healed and move along? Great, she has her healing. But Jesus, my daughter's dying. Please, Lord, please, we need to go. Very quickly, there's a lesson here. Are you willing to have God delay your miracle in order to give someone else theirs? Maybe your miracle is for a restored marriage, but God wants more than a restored marriage. He wants a restored person. He wants a brand new person, both in your spouse and in you. Maybe God's got something bigger in mind. Maybe, maybe God's just going to use whatever trial you're in, and you're begging for it to stop, but God's going to use that in some mighty way in the lives of your children. I just remember um, being oh, probably seven years old on the farm. Dad, uh, one Sunday morning, went out to, to, to feed the cows um, and jumped off the back of the tractor, and there's a PTO that's spinning. Um, 
And back, safety was not a big issue on the farm back in those days. Anyhow, he got his, his um, the cuff of his pant leg got wrapped up in that PTO and just ripped his ankle to shreds. And um, so he went to, they went to the hospital. Uh, he was there for a week. He was going to come home, got a bad infection, and ended up in isolation in the hospital for a month. And um, so everything was going wrong. But as a seven-year-old, right, we're watching. And we're watching as um, people show up and milk the cows. And, and the whole church showed up and, um, and put up the corn crop. It was fall. And, and this church just surrounded us and were bringing meals and providing for us in every way. And um, we're learning things. It's like graduate school for the faithfulness of God for seven-year-olds. Are you willing to be the person whose miracle is delayed so God can work beautiful, wonderful things in the lives of other people? And could you trust that God knows what he's doing? That we don't need to despair over God's delays? God does move in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. Deep and unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he works out, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. God knows what he's doing. And he knows what he's doing here, though you've got to know for Jairus, it's almost impossible to accept and believe. And, and it doesn't mean the waiting is easy. He does his own things for his own reasons, and, and what Jairus feared would happen, happens. Guy shows up, uh, don't trouble the teacher anymore, your daughter's dead. <laughs> I was listening to a sermon by Alistair Begg on this. He says, uh, this guy's not part of the diplomatic corps, is he? I mean, could you, <clears throat> could you have said that maybe just a little more gently? Hopefully he's not going to be a hospital chaplain. Your daughter's dead, okay? Your daughter's dead. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. Why not? Well, because nobody can help dead people. Now, I just, if you could just try to imagine how devastating this is for Jairus. Isn't it true that some of the most intensely frustrating things that happen in your life are the things that you have feared would happen, that you knew were going to happen if such and such didn't take place, and you were so desperately trying to make such and such happen, and then it, but it doesn't happen, people don't cooperate, things go wrong, and then exactly the thing that you were afraid would happen, happens. Man, that's frustrating. I can just imagine Jairus said, Jesus, I told you she was sick. I said she was dying. Why are we dawdling in this crowd? Can you just imagine what the anger and the grief and the loss could have just spilled out of him? Why would God let them get so close? I mean, Jesus was maybe a quarter mile away. So close to saving his daughter, and then God just lets it all fall to pieces. And so great, this woman got her healing, but it cost him the life of his daughter. But you see, that would just all be the, ra the, the reasoning of unbelief, because none of it was true. <laughs> none of it was true. The delay only meant that God was going to get greater glory in not just healing a sick person, but raising the dead to life, and that Jairus is going to find his faith expanded in ways he'd never imagined, and that his joy is only going to be increased, both because his daughter's been brought back to life and because he gets an insight into why Jesus came. 
There's nothing being lost at all. But oh, what a battle for faith this is. And Jesus knows it and points, points right at it. So here comes this messenger of unbelief, of common sense and reason. Don't trouble the teacher any longer. She's dead. It's too little, too late. He can't help anymore. No one can solve the problem of death. Everybody knows that's true. But it's not true. It's not true. Someone can solve the problem of death. Someone has solved the problem of death. That's precisely the glory of the gospel. But we have to believe it, and it's an audacious thing to believe. But notice how Jesus rebukes that message of unbelief with an audacious call to faith. Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, the messenger of unbelief, speaking to the father, Jairus, do not fear, only believe, and she'll be well. Now that is either unbelievably cruel or it's unbelievably true. Do not fear, only believe, and your dead daughter will be well. And those are the man's options, fear faith. Reckon points out these are always in opposition to each other. It means we have a choice to make. Either we can be afraid of all the things that might go wrong and have gone wrong, or we can trust Jesus to see us through it all. So I want you to just imagine what a big ask this is. It seems like a big ask, doesn't it? Here's this, this man that you had hoped would heal your sick daughter, and, and yet he dawdled and she died, and, and now this man is, is looking straight into your eyes and, and telling you, don't be afraid, only believe, and all will be well. And those are the two narratives that he can believe. The common narrative, what everybody knows, is, is that death is the undefeatable uh, enemy or the narrative that Jesus is telling him that death is, is no threat to his power and grace. And what if this man had just decided he'd had enough? What if Jairus had said, listen, I trusted you once. I begged you. I was on my knees in front of all those people. I begged you to come and help. I'm not doing it again. Right? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. That's what thousands and thousands and thousands of bitter people say. I trusted you, and you took my marriage. I trusted you, and you took my child. I trusted you, and I lost my job. I lost my health. And now you have the audacity to say, only believe. See, Jairus could have said that, and he could have just walked away. And he could have went home and buried his dead daughter and absolutely missed the miracle. God is sovereign, but God sovereignly uses faith. And so Jesus is appealing to this man. Only believe, only believe. There's one thing for you to do, Jairus, focus. Only believe and believe in me. He's asking Jairus to cast up everything on Jesus. His hope, his reputation, his, his fear of being hurt and let down, his his future, his life, his daughter, everything. Jesus says, Jairus, believe in me. Throw it, throw it on me. Only believe. And you've you, you got to know, he, he's looking directly into this man's eyes, calling Jairus to faith. Will he be willing to let everything go and just cast himself on Jesus? And he does. He does. By the power and grace of God, he believes. And so they move forward, a grieving yet believing father and Jesus. 
Verse 51, they came to the house. He allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James. Isn't that wonderful that he invites Peter in? I would have said, uh, Peter the wise, why don't you stand outside? And John and James, you come with me. But he doesn't. He takes Peter. <laughs> I love that. He uses the most messed up people like us. And so they go to the room, and all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. You see, they laughed at the audacity of Jesus. They laughed at the foolish naivety of Jesus. She's not sleeping, she's dead. They've been to a thousand funerals. They're professional mourners. They know a dead body when they've seen one, and they've, they've never, ever seen anything other than a burial. She's dead. She's lost. She's gone. Give it up. Death wins. And Jesus ignores them and goes to the girl and takes her by the hand, saying, child, arise. It's the most tender language in the Greek. It's, it's what a parent would say, honey, it's time to get up. That's all he says, honey, it's time to get up. Just reaches his hand right into the realm of death and raises this little girl to life and gives her to her parents and says, maybe you want to give her something to eat. Keller says this is one of his favorite stories in all the Bible because he said that the fact that the Son of God came to this earth willing and committed to giving his life, suffering the judgment of God so that he could say to little children, honey, it's time to get up. How can you not trust this man? How can you not trust this man who is so incredibly powerful and able and yet is so tender, so kind, and who will say to every single one of his children on the last day, honey, it's time to get up and raise us into everlasting life. G.B. Hardy, a Canadian scientist, one time said, when I looked at religion, I said, I got two questions. One, has anybody ever conquered death? And two, if they have, did they make a way for me to do it? So I checked the tomb of Buddha, and it was occupied. I checked the tomb of Confucius, and it was occupied. I checked the tomb of Muhammad, and it was occupied. And I came to the tomb of Jesus, and it was empty. And I said, here is one who has conquered death. So I asked the second question, did he wake, make a way for me to do it? And I opened my Bible and I read where he said, because I live, you shall live also. Whoever believes in me will never die. Can you trust this man? Will you trust this man? Will you learn with me to read our lives in the context of who he is and what he promises and what he's done? So we, we learn to read the circumstances of our life by faith, not by what we know, not by what the circumstances say and what everybody around us knows, but what God says and what Jesus has done so that no matter what, what the conscience might say or the devil might say, we know what we are by faith in Jesus Christ. I'm a child of God and, and I'm an heir of everlasting life and, and this life is momentary and fleeting and it's hard and I don't understand it. But I, I believe, I believe that Jesus is going to be faithful. And I believe the work that he's begun, he's going to carry it out. And I believe that in all of this, he's working out his sovereign purposes so that his name is most magnified and my joy is most enhanced for all eternity. I believe that. Do you believe? May God give us the grace. Amen.
Father in heaven, you know our unbelief. You know, Lord, how easily we allow the circumstances of our life to dictate our truth. And so we get anxious and we get angry, we get bitter, we despair, we're discontent, and all because we're believing a lie. And so, Father, we ask for forgiveness. How can we doubt you when you've sent your very own son whom you dearly loved, the one Jairus was so desperate not to lose, you freely gave up. Not just to suffer physical death, but to suffer the judgment and wrath of God for us. So, Father, forgive us for doubting you and forgive us for not entering into the joy and the peace that is ours, purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would... Give us this bold, audacious faith, this, this deep, abiding confidence, this unshakable conviction that God is for us and nothing and no one can be against us with any effect. So Lord, teach us to rebuke our worries, to put to bed our fears, to focus our eyes on Jesus and to walk by faith until we see the glorious ending you have in mind. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.